0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation, Gary Hirschberg explains how Stonyfield Farm is reducing its ecological footprint while maximizing profitability. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby.
1: And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we are excited to bring you another presentation from Bridging the Gap, the 2005 Net Impact Conference convened by the Stanford Graduate School of Business.
0: The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review.
2: Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com.
0: And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation.
1: When I think about business, the business environment interface, I'm reminded of my favorite philosopher Lily Tomlin who says, uh, no matter how cynical I get, it's hard to keep up. And uh, I know after this morning's uh, remarks that I don't have to preach to you about the negative impact that business and commerce have had on the planet and on the hopes for future generations. In our ignorance and in our arrogance, we've applied a kind of a linear um, exploitative model in which we input the planet's resources at one end and output concentrations of capital, but also waste. And we've engaged in this mythology with several fundamental and flawed beliefs, and Greg just spoke to some of them. One, that we can continue to mine and toxify the Earth's crust without long-term repercussions for future life. Uh, Two, that technology and ingenuity can replace natural order. Three, that we can heat the planet and convert fixed carbon into gaseous carbon and send it away. And fourth, that there is even an idea of something called away. Uh, which, you know, my generation, uh, wastewater engineers who grew up in my uh, era, learned that the solution to pollution is dilution. And uh, I I now say that that, that's delusion. Uh, Now, I'm no Luddite. I believe in technology, and in fact, many of the strides that we natural products companies have enjoyed have been very much due to technology, just as I believe in the power of capitalism and commerce to be constructive forces for positive change. But I think we need to shed these myths, as you've now heard several of us say, and forge a new model of capitalism and a new set of principles. And so, what I want to do now is just talk to you about my last 23 years. Like Greg, we started uh, early in the the, the natural products movement. I always say that uh, we were uh, producing organic yogurt back yogurt, back when organic used to mean that you have to chew extra and i think uh, a lot of the older folks here know what i'm talking about we had these wonderful breads and you know delicious uh, foods pastas that you could kind of work your way through we had it it was all uh, you know eating with our brains not with our mouths but somewhere along the way we discovered and realized that it was food and it needed to taste delicious and that has i think been a big contributor to our explosion but i think there's been another uh, big contributor and and uh, it, it, for me, began as a hypothesis 23 years ago, and it's now absolutely a proven theorem. In fact, Al and I uh, spent an hour together after, uh, backstage here afterwards, and uh, you know, the, these are the theorems that I think um, his organization is trying to absolutely put to work in their investment decisions, and, and, and I think he's going to do incredibly well. My generation used to talk about sustainability and slowing things down, and yet now we're speaking about survivability and getting back down. And I will cut to the punchline and just simply say to you that uh, I know, I know now, that we can build businesses that return strong shareholder value while at the same time invest in restoration. And along the way, in, our, in my odyssey, what began as a hypothesis, you know, we had many, many, many rough years of, of very steep learning. I don't know if you've heard the Winston Churchill quote that success Success is the ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And uh, I think we're both sort of pathological optimists here. And yes, we are from the generation that didn't exhale, unlike uh, Al Gore's ex-former partner. But, but I, I'm learning uh, that, in fact, uh, this theorem, uh, what, what got us through all of this, what got us to this scale that we're at as an industry and, and my own business in particular, uh, is in fact the very mission that caused me to go there in the first place. And I'll try to make that case for you very briefly here. I should also say that I'm learning now, in my new relationship with Group Danone, which I'll speak about, that this, this can be true. This rule, this idea that the mission is actually a, 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 a core of our top and bottom line success in our longevity, uh, is, is even more true in the largest corporations out there. Now, Stonyfield's approach is just one, and we've, we're fortunately seeing many, many others. So, just to put the parameters out there, Stonyfield is now the third largest yogurt company in America. We have 350 employees, we'll do 210 million in sales, we'll produce about 25 million in uh, net profit. Uh, We grew 28% in the last year, but over the last 13 years, we've grown an average uh, compound growth rate of about 23% in a category that's growing at about 6 to 7% annually, so three or four times the category. Um, we are not only the number three yogurt brand in the country, we're the number one organic brand in the world, and now we've actually started a new company called Stonyfield Europe, which is launching in Ireland and England and France and uh, actually Turkey, where, by the way, the average herd size is 1.2 cows. Um, my roots, uh, not unlike a lot of uh, my peers, were actually in the nonprofit uh, world. I ran a little place called New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, where we did ecological design and and advanced a lot of the things that are now becoming part and parcel of modern-day science. I was actually a windmill builder myself, and uh, we could, in an area about a quarter the size of this stage, we could feed 10 people 3 meals a day, 365 days a year, using no fossil fuels, no, no chemical pesticides, herbicides, or fertilizers, using only the sun as our engine and uh, we could feed uh, folks profitably. You could come in in the winter with five feet of snow outside and see bananas and figs, papayas growing, all solar uh, powered. The the fish water was a waste system that was turned into a food system for the gardens. The gardens were a a waste system that would produce food for the tanks, and the tanks were heating the building by trapping the sun's rays and so forth. And as I think some of you may have heard as I've toured around telling this story, I visited my mother in 1980 at the, um, at the Epcot Center in Florida where they had the, la- the land pavilion funded at that time by Kraft Foods. And as you can probably imagine, it was a little bit different than my model of my notion of how food would be grown in the future. The sort of punchline was, you buy the Velveeta and leave the food growing to us. It was a, a monument to uh, fossil fuel use, to mining the Earth's crust. It was a heated building in Central Florida. There were huge amounts of uh, fossil fuels uh, going in, and, and pesticides, and fertilizers, and so on and so forth. And as horrified as I was by the model of how food would be grown in the future, I was even more horrified by the fact that for the 25,000 people who visited my institute every year, that's how many people paid to go through there every day. And uh, I came out of the booth, uh, out of the uh, pavilion, and I said to my mother, Mom, I've got to become craft Foods. I, to have that power, that reach, is, is, is what I... Uh, I, I need, if I'm going to advance this notion of a more sustainable agriculture. As again, some of you know, four years ago, we passed craft and sales of yogurt. We're now actually three times their size, their Briars brand. And so 21 years after that epiphany, I actually entered into a partnership with Group Danone, which is a 18 billion dollar global uh, dairy company. The mission that led us, that we took off with, was uh, a five-part mission of superior quality of using, of uh, seeing education as marketing, marketing as education, of enriching, providing an enriched workplace where people could advance their career goals, of saving family farmers, but primarily and most importantly of proving that we could do and have a a focus on our ecological footprint, while at the same time concentrating on maximizing profitability. Because it was my belief that even if we could make a successful company, and it took us many years to get there, uh, that uh, we would only be one successful company, that the planet, for all the reasons Greg and Al talked about, could not wait around for us to just become one large company. We needed to inspire other large companies, and the only way we were going to do that was by showing that you could get a tremendous bottom line. And if you, if you have the focus on profitability, you realize, of course, there's really only two ways to do it. You can grow revenues, or you can cut costs, and or you can cut costs. So, some examples of what we've learned over these years. On cost-cutting, we we, we were the first manufacturer in the country to make ourselves a uh, zero-emissions manufacturer, that is to say, a non-contributor to climate change. And we did that by changing the lighting, by taking the heat out of our wastewater, by double-insulating our coolers, and so on, and taking the savings that we were generating, and by the way, this is in the millions of dollars per year, uh, many, many thousands of tons of CO2 were being taken out of the atmosphere. The, the, obviously, the best way to save energy is to, is to not use it in the first place. And we used some of the portion of those millions of dollars to invest in trees, planting trees or converting diesel buses over to natural gas buses. In other words, into th- something that you, many of you know called carbon offsets. On waste prevention and recycling, over these last 10, ten years, we prevented 12 million pounds of materials from going to landfills or incinerators. That's 7,000... Tons of CO2, about 70% of our waste that goes out, goes out as recyclables. Interestingly, we've turned it, not only has that reduced our cost, because we don't have disposal and landfill costs, but we've also been able to uh, take waste products and turn them into revenue. For example, the cardboard boxes that, deliver, that come delivering our packaging, we fold those and we sell them to a company called Rebox, who actually pays us to use them and they reuse them as boxes. Uh, we've saved uh, over million a million dollars a year from um, decreased trash hauling, increased revenues from recyclables, and so on. Our packaging, and in, in, in getting rid of the overcap that you might have seen if some of you ate our yogurt a few years ago, and we're replacing it with a foil lid. We're using 16% less energy, 13% less water, 6% less solid waste, saving about a million dollars a year. And obviously, uh, that also includes uh, less waste stream. Uh, or the form fill-and-seal machines that, that now, where we actually fill it on the line, saves us 1.8 million dollars annually. I call this the First National Bank of Conservation. This has been my, my venture capital. Uh, one last example, organic sugar. In, in Brazil, where we purchase our uh, sugar from 30,000 acres of uh, cooperatively farmed uh, cropland down there, uh, our investment in organics has resulted in our farmers, but, and by the way, the sugar... Uh, that we were buying five years ago it was a 100% premium. The organics are 100% more expensive than conventional. Uh, so yes, we are all crazy people up here. But what has happened is the investment in organics has resulted in an investment in, in really the Earth's equity by putting compost and manures and chopped cane back into the soil. We've actually increased soil tilth, built equity. We have 50 species of birds and mammals that have returned to these areas. The soil takes much less energy and effort to till it up. It's much more moisture holding, Uh, the conventional farms, sugar farms right next to us, uh, which have been, uh, there's been a drought the last couple of um, uh, winters, uh, our winters, their summers, Uh, with a lack of organic matter in the soil, when you spray water on it, it just evapotranspirates, and it transpires, and they lose maybe 90% of the water. But in organic soils, and we've seen this in the Central Valley right here in California, I've walked on Central Valley dairy farms that are organic, where there are birds and bees flying all over, and I've gone a half a mile down the road where there's no life. There's nothing happening, because the entire food chain has been disrupted. But what has happened here is that these soils retain moisture, keep more active uh, 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 microbiological Uh, Activity and 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 also are obviously uh, getting greater yields the dairy the the sugar farmers in Brazil now Have had 10% annual increases in yields They're now at parity with conventional and my and and in terms of pricing and I've actually now got uh, about a 25% reduction in costs by investing in the planet Hundreds of organic dairy farms in New England and across the country have found the same thing that they're more profitable than ever and coming back uh, due to cost reductions animals live longer Uh, Their soil takes less energy and horsepower to till up, and so forth. Now on the revenue generation side of the model, uh, again, in our model of capitalism, uh, we have uh, a disadvantage. And I, I guess I'll use the metaphor of Coke and Pepsi here with you, one of the sponsors. You know, Coke and Pepsi's mission, which is the mission of most consumer products, is to cheapen the product as much as you possibly can. And there's really nothing cheaper than sugar, water, and corn syrup solids. And then you take this enormous margin that's left over, and you buy advertising. And as I think we're all learning, and certainly you all are, are learning, advertising is less and less uh, effective all the, all the while. We're now being over-messaged as a society. You can get messages on your Blackberry and your cell phone, and, and uh, we're, you know, we're all constantly plugged in, and we're just less responsive to them. Now, as an organic company and and, uh, as a natural products company, we we don't have that luxury of cheapening our product because our our whole mission is to reinvest in farmers, reinvest in the earth, reinvest in in long-term true natural equity. And so the net result of that is we've had to just be a lot more clever. When Al was talking today in his fund how the... The ecotypes were saying, this is so cool to be engaged in investment because the discipline of the marketplaces uh, really helps to get uh, very focused on what needs to, needs to happen. That has absolutely been the story for our company and ever so many natural products companies. We've just had to find another way, a non-advertising way, to make up that net margin. So I can tell you at my gross margin line, I'm ten points behind my peers, but I make it all up below the, below the line where my nets are exactly the same as them, by just simply focusing on other things we do. So. We use our lids, our packaging, to talk about environmental messages. We have 150 million lids. Al will never uh, forgive me for the fact that when he was heading off to Kyoto and we weren't sure, we, the environmental community wasn't exactly sure whether he was going to sign the Global Warming Accord, we published his email address on our lids, and uh, he, got something, he got something like 175,000 emails. Uh, now, I sent 174,000 myself, but, um, but nevertheless, another thousand people joined me. When the Gingrich Congress was coming in with, some of you may not remember, but they they had what I called the contract on America. Uh, They were threatening to slash funding for clean air and clean water. We came out with a lid that said, Congress, have you flipped your lid? And then you flip it over and there was a letter that you could write and it said, Dear Congressperson, you could fill in their name, it said, I believe in an efficient government, but not at the expense of my children's futures. If you vote against the planet, I won't vote for you. And 15,000 people mailed these lids in to Capitol Hill. When we were going into uh, uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago was basically a two-supermarket town when we started and the two supermarkets told us that we had to get to a 3.5 market share within three months or we wouldn't be able to stay on the shelves. Now that by our estimates was around 11 million dollars of advertising spend which we of course didn't have. So uh, we called the, my background is climate change, I know that when you take a train or a bus you're saving 45 pounds of particulate from going into the atmosphere per year by not driving your, consumer, your commuter vehicle. So we went to the Chicago Transit Authority and said, Folks, will you let us um, go on your train platforms and hand out yogurt to thank people for riding the trains? And they were sort of stunned by this. They said, You want to thank us for, thank them for riding our trains? He said, Sure. They had never allowed food on their platforms in the entire history of the program. Uh, so we greeted 85,000 commuters in three days, gave them a yogurt, a spoon... And a little memo, a little uh, brochure that said, we salute your commute, thank you for doing your part to fight climate change. Of course, these poor commuters just thought they were getting to work. Um, (laughs) The Today Show came down, Uh, we had uh, all kinds of news, people were saying these crazy people are uh, giving out yogurt to thank people for for riding trains. At the end of the week, we were at 3.1 market share with 85,000 samples uh, and a a savings of about $10 million if you uh, went the conventional route. So inspired by this, we went to Texas, where of course they don't believe in trains, and um, <laughs> and uh, this is right in the heart of Bush Country. Uh, and uh, we came up with this little statistic that if if America kept our car tires properly inflated, we could get a two mpg increase in national cafe standards and national fuel efficiency. So we made up a big giant sign. We stood on the side of the road and said, "We support inflation," and. Um, <laughs> People would pull off the side of the road, we'd, hand them a, uh, we'd, we'd fill their tires with air, we'd hand them a little tire gauge with a Stonyfield logo, a coupon, a yogurt, a brochure, and same thing, bumped our share immensely. The, the classic example of uh, living without advertising for us has always been our Have a Cow program. Back when we were completely impoverished in the early days, all we had was cows, and uh, so we decided to put them up for adoption. And you could send in five lids, get yourself a photograph of your cow, a certificate, naming you the co-owner of the cow and then your cow would send you letters twice a year (laughs) so the the net of all of this and just to just to cut to the cut to the punchline, is that we've we've built a a a relationship with our consumer that is ultimately the holy grail of what advertising intends which is through focusing on sustainability through focusing on our mission we have built loyalty which is the holy grail now let me just simply say in closing my deal with group the same, same situation. Here I'm faced, I've had this wonderful run of success, huge uh, growth on the top and bottom line, tremendous uh, results. Danone came, that, that what it ended up doing is in addition to this whole notion of sustainability and building sustainability into our business being key to our top and bottom line growth, it's also been key to my remaining independent. Danon has purchased 80% of the company and yet I still control three of five board seats. They have only vetoes on capex and acquisitions. Uh, I've delivered, as long as I deliver my numbers, I've delivered 250% growth since they came in on the top line, 500% growth on the bottom line, and so forth. So, to, to conclude, and, and, and let me just say that the chairman of Danone, an 18 billion dollar company, who like Nestle and so many of these other companies, wants to enter this space, said Stonyfield represents an ethic that, Den- that we at Danone must adopt if we're going to be successful in the next century. That ethic and this mission can be summarized very simply. When I went to Harvard B School for my nephew's graduation uh, last June, I listened to Jeffrey Immelt, and I'm a big fan of what he's starting to do at GE, but I, I must beg to differ when I heard him talk about the party line, which is the primacy of the shareholder. I would leave you with this thought that I believe in the primacy of the shareholder as long as it is equal and equitable with the rights of farmers, the rights of employees, the rights of the community, the rights of the planet. And my key learnings in these 23 years, which I'm happy to discuss with you now, is that essentially conscious consumption, the consumer is still in charge, tell the consumer what you stand for, tell them what you believe in, walk your talk, do the things that we say that we want to see in the world, and therefore prove the power of Margaret Mead's adage, which is never doubt the power of one to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org.
2: Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier.
0: My name is Elena Connor Snibby, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening.